This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Robots Radio presents... In 1997, director Gus Van Sant and star Robin Williams gave the world a heartwarming tale of a broken genius finding his inner peace. In 2020, Heaven Hill gives us a bottled and bond bourbon to continue our springtime of swill. The movie is Goodwill Hunting. The whiskey is JTS Brown, bottled and bond. And we'll review them both. This is the, the Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 1997 film Good Will Hunting. See, the sad thing about a guy like you is in 50 years you're going to start doing some thinking on your own and you're going to come up with the fact that there are two certainties in life. One, don't do that. And two, you dropped 150 grand on a an education you could have got for a dollar fifty in late charges at the public library. <laughs> yeah, but I will have a degree, and you'll be serving my kids fries at a drive-through on our way to a skiing trip. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, but at least I won't be unoriginal. Brad, we are finalizing our series on Robin Williams. We've done four movies, kind of spanning Robin Williams' career, and this is the movie that. To some people, he should be remembered for the most because this is the film where he won his Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. Yeah, it, it goes so deep that in Boston, the bench that he and Matt Damon kind of had their little conversation on next to the river, uh, that kind of became like a memorial site where people were you know, putting down flowers and notes and letters and candles. It's really become his most famous role that he's most well known for. Yeah, in some ways, that's true. In other ways, I feel like Robin Williams, we saw so many different sides of his personality in his career. We saw his kind of versatility, where if you wanted to say Mrs. Doubtfire is his most iconic role, you'd probably be right. If you wanted to say the genie was his most iconic role, you'd probably be right. If you wanted to say Dead Poet Society or Goodwill Hunting are his most iconic, you'd probably be right. And I think that's what I've enjoyed the most about this little dive into Robin Williams' career. Yeah, I I personally probably saw him first as Genie. Um, but for me, one of my favorite Robin Williams things that we didn't talk about and we're not going to because this is a film podcast, but I loved him on the TV show Mork and Mindy. Uh, Bob, have you ever seen that? Oh, yeah, I've seen a few episodes of Mork and Mindy. You know, it started as a spinoff from Happy Days. And that's how people got to know Robin Williams as this kind of crazy manic personality on TV. Yeah, so I you just see so many different sides of him. I, I think the beautiful thing about his film career is that you do get a lot of very kind of serious uh, sides of Robin that you wouldn't necessarily get if you just saw the manic TV show Robin Williams. He just has this ability to draw you into his performances. And and it's it's funny to me, but I've realized... I think he has a lot more heartwarming performances in movies than he does just funny performances. It definitely seems like he leaned more in that direction, kind of post Dead Poet Society. Like that's when he finally started to get really recognition for his dramatic chops. And I feel like, you know, the year after Dead Poets, he does Awakenings all through the 90s. He's kind of alternating between some comedy, but then these really sort of sentimental kind of movies like Patch Adams and especially after he gets his Oscar for Goodwill Hunting, you really don't see him too much in comedies at all after that. So in a lot of ways, this movie was the pinnacle of his dramatic acting career. And Brad, I want to get into talking about Goodwill Hunting. Had you seen this movie prior to this viewing for our podcast? Yeah, I've actually seen the movie. I would say this was my fourth 
maybe fifth time seeing it. I know I've seen it two to three times before. Yeah, I've probably seen it about the same. This may have been my third viewing. I actually never really caught up with this movie until I was in my 20s. Like, it's only been a few years since I've seen this for the first time. And I feel like it had kind of hung over me as a movie that I hadn't seen because a lot of people saw this movie. You know, it was an independent movie that was picked up by Miramax. It had a huge marketing push behind it for the Academy Awards. And then after Ben Affleck and Matt Damon win their Oscar for the screenplay, after Robin Williams wins his Oscar, it becomes like a smash hit. And in the years following, I think kind of everyone has seen this movie at some point, whether it's, you know, in the theater or as a rental or on cable. And I had just never caught up with it. So I didn't really have like the attachment that a lot of people have had with this movie for the last almost 25 years now. Yeah, Bob, I think I'm kind of in the same spot as you. I'm pretty sure the first time I saw this film would have been like sophomore, junior year of college, probably around the time when we were roommates. And honestly, as you were talking about it as a movie and how it gained popularity and won the Oscars, it actually kind of reminds me of another film that we've already reviewed on the podcast. I feel like this movie is somewhat similar to Shawshank Redemption. Just in the timing, you know, the year that it came out, it's a 90s film. I'll bet you it feels like an easy movie to watch on cable. It feels like an easy movie to just kind of catch in the middle of it and be like, oh, yeah, you know, it's Goodwill Hunting. So I I feel like, I don't know, do you feel like there's a similar sense of that to you? So I actually wrote down notes for today's episode. Uh, Sometimes we just kind of go into a blind and we, we see what each other thinks kind of in the middle of the episode. I wrote down all my notes for this film because I thought we might get into an argument about it, Brad. And the movie that I most want to compare this to is The Shawshank Redemption. I'm really, really happy that you kind of picked up on some of that. I do feel like there's kind of like some thematic stuff that's even similar to Shawshank. So I'm excited to get into talking about that. But before we get to that point, Brad, we need to introduce America's favorite segment on the Film and Whiskey podcast, which we call Brad Explains. This is where Brad has often seen a movie for the very first time, and he brings his opinion of the film to our podcast, and he breaks down the plot of the film for our listeners. Now, Brad, you have the benefit of having seen this movie a couple times, so that should help us with Brad Explains. Why don't you give our listeners the plot of the movie Goodwill Hunting? Yeah, so the movie Goodwill Hunting, it's it's about a young man um, born on the south side of Boston uh, whose name is Will Hunting. He, you know, the south side of Boston is is kind of the trashy, rough neighborhood part of Boston. You, at the start of the film, you see him kind of get into fights for no reason. He, he just picks a fight to pick a fight and he gets, you know, thrown into jail for a little bit. And and you can tell that he's kind of rough and tumble. He He works a job up at MIT and he's a janitor there. And while he is a janitor there, he encounters this psychotically difficult math problem that a math professor placed on the board and told his students like, hey, if any of you guys solve this, I don't know, you're going to get some big reward. And uh, Matt Damon just goes in and solves it. Easy peasy, no problem. And he leaves and the math professor is like, oh my gosh, who did this? And nobody owns up to it in his class. So he puts a new problem on the board that's even harder than that one. And he catches Matt Damon drawing on the board and he scares him off. And then he goes and looks at it and realizes, holy cow, this janitor knew knew the answer to this even more difficult problem that only like 10 people in the world could solve. So Matt Damon is a genius. He's just a he's just a mathematical genius. Um, and, and from there on, you kind of find out that he has a lot of emotional issues. He was a foster child um, who was abused. And he is very antagonistic. He pushes away anyone who tries to care for him. He cares very deeply for his close friend group uh, that he kind of treats like family. And that's about it. And so throughout the rest of the film, you see him falling in love with a girl that attends uh, MIT, but he keeps pushing her away. He pushes away the professor. But as a part of his uh, bail, he has to go and uh, go take counseling. And he gets run through the ringer of a bunch of different high-end counselors that he pushes away from him. And he finally finds his way to the office of our star of the month, Robin Williams. And they slowly build a bond and a relationship that enables Robin Williams to reach Will, you know, played by Matt Damon. And and they build an emotionally healthy relationship, and Robin Williams is able to help him work on his crap. 
and it's a really beautiful story, and uh, we'll we'll get into it throughout the rest of the episode, but I'm pretty sure that sums it up, Bob. Yeah, that does a pretty good job of summing it up. I think that there are kind of secondary relationships in this movie that we're going to get into talking about as well. The movie is kind of about Matt Damon's character, Will, and his relationship with a couple different groups of people. You know, one of that being his friend group, which includes his best friend, Chucky, played by Ben Affleck. Matt Damon and Ben Affleck co-wrote this movie together. They are the screenwriters of this film. And if you've ever heard them kind of recount the tale of how it came to be, you know, they were just kind of struggling actors. And every time they would come home from an audition and it didn't go well, they'd sit down and write more and they'd bounce stuff off each other because they were, you know, best friends. They were living with each other. And I really do think that the relationship between Ben Affleck and Matt Damon in this movie, it's not super crucial to the plot, quote unquote, like the things that happen in the movie. But in my opinion, it might be the most important relationship in the movie. And Brad, I guess the place that I want to start talking, we're going to get into talking about these performances. And so why don't we just start with these two incredible young actors, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck? What did you think of their performances in this film? Dude, first off, you hit the nail on the head. Holy cow, were they young in this movie? Yeah. I think that we've forgotten, like, I mean, first of all, I can't believe it's almost been 25 years since this movie came out. But on top of that, they have been huge, famous Hollywood actors for so long as a result of this movie that we kind of forget how young they were when this came out. Can I, can I be honest with you, though? I <laughs> There's a large part of me that feels like the only reason Ben Affleck is famous is because he was, I don't know, about dated or married to Jennifer Garner when she was at the height of her powers and because he's best friends with Matt Damon, who has turned out to be a much more prolific, a much better actor than Ben Affleck. Do you agree with that or am I off my off I would my agree that Matt Damon is probably the better actor between the two. I think Ben Affleck has just made some really questionable career choices, but I think he is absolutely a movie star in his own right. And I think he's a really good actor when he chooses the projects that actually showcase his talents as opposed to just like, you know, daredevil. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I just I was watching this and I was like, man, how is it that Ben Affleck is a major movie star uh, and not and not because of his role in Goodwill Hunting? It just feels like in general. Yeah. Matt Damon has made much better choices with his roles. Well, maybe we should kind of go out of order a little bit then. And I, I, I want to talk about Ben Affleck a little bit because in a lot of ways, I think that Ben Affleck, not just his character, but his performance in this movie really helps to hold the whole thing together. Will is kind of going in and out of these different kind of circles that he has socially with the math professor, with Robin Williams character, Sean, with his girlfriend, Skylar, and with this group of friends. And for me, I think the most emotionally powerful scenes in the movie aren't the ones that are, you know, in the trailer and on the awards show clips of Robin Williams saying it's not your fault. I really felt the power of that friendship when Ben Affleck is telling him on the construction site, you owe it to me to do something with your life. It'd be an insult to us if you're still here in 20 years. Hanging around here is a fucking waste of your time. You don't know that. I don't? No. You don't know that. No, I don't know that. Let me tell you what I do know. Every day I come by your house and I pick you up. We go out, we have a few drinks and a few laughs, and it's great. You know what the best part of my day is? For about 10 seconds from when I pull up to the curb and when I get to your door. Because I think maybe I'll get up there and I'll knock on the door and you won't be there. No goodbye, no see you later, no nothing. I'm just left. I don't know much, but I know that. And when that finally happens, you know, spoiler alert, at the end of the movie, when Matt Damon finally gets his act together and goes to California to go chase Skyler, basically, and the camera just stays on Ben Affleck's face and his reaction to, to realizing that his friend is finally realizing his potential, that was actually the most powerful moment of the movie for me. And I think that Ben Affleck freaking knocked it out of the park in this movie. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you, Bob. I I really enjoyed Ben Affleck. I, I think my favorite part about him is, A, his self-awareness, that his character kind of knows what his role is and he's okay with it. Yep. But he's also really well aware of Matt Damon's prowess and and he encourages him in that. And and I love that he's not jealous of of Will. You know what I mean? Like, 
the the way that Ben Affleck portrays being a brother who doesn't have blood relations to to Matt Damon is amazing. Um, I, I think the most important part of his role is in establishing the family mindset that you realize is kind of a key part of Will's life, that he pushes everyone else away, but the people who have seen him through his crap are his family. And like when Sean says, you know, oh, they, they don't count. They would take a bullet for you. They don't challenge you. I think that's a really great part of the movie because you, you start to understand that like, yeah, this this family isn't necessarily going to push him, but by golly, they're going to love him no matter what. And the cool thing is at the end of the movie in that scene that you're talking about, Bob, the family does push him out of the nest. The family does challenge him. And you realize that they're not just silly friends, that they actually are, you know, intellectual challenges to Matt Damon, even though he's much smarter than all of them. Yeah. And that's part of why I love Ben Affleck so much in this movie, because he does more with less. There's a lot of like subtext with Ben Affleck in this movie. There's not a lot that's actually spoken but even in those scenes that you get, these repeated scenes where they're all drinking in a bar together, you can tell that Ben Affleck is kind of the leader of the pack. And he's also, in his own way, just as smart as Will is. Like, he doesn't have the brains, the the, the book smarts, but he also is really keenly aware of what's going on with Will. He knows why Will is pushing people away. You know, he he's content to let him do it for as long as he can. But when Will finally kind of just says, like, screw it, I'm not going to do anything, he knows exactly when to push Will and motivate him to do something more. And I think that the way that you can see Ben Affleck kind of reading the situation in the bar when Will brings his girlfriend Skylar into the dynamic and he's starting to pick up on how Will is even pushing her away. I really was impressed with the way that Ben Affleck could convey all of what's going on behind the scenes in his mind with very little to do on the page. Because if we're being honest, like Matt Damon's character, he is the movie. He's in almost every scene of the movie and he gets plenty of opportunities to show his chops. Whereas I feel like Ben Affleck, he's only in really a few scenes of the film and I think he makes the most of them. Yeah, I mean, even the scene when they're leaving the bar with Skylar, and she's kind of, you know, a little bit drunk and she goes, oh, when am I going to get to see your 12 brothers? I wanted to meet them. And like Ben Affleck is very well aware of the fact that Matt Damon is a foster child and doesn't have any brothers. But he just kind of silent. He just kind of leaves it quiet and goes, yeah, you know, we'll see you another time. And, and he looks at Will and you can see that concern in his eyes. But but that's it. He just leaves it. And you're like, man, that is the friend that everyone wishes that they had. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if that had been Casey Affleck's character, he would have spilled the beans and been like, been like, oh, what are you talking about? He doesn't have any brothers. But like you see that emotional maturity in Ben Affleck to let his boy do his thing. And he, he's going to challenge him when they're one on one, but he's not going to betray him in front of people who are outside the family. You know what I mean? Absolutely. All right. Let's talk about Matt Damon, because this is his movie. I mean, he's nominated for best actor for this film. I think he does a really good job. I really do. I think that the script that he, that he and Ben Affleck wrote, I have my issues with it, and we're going to get into talking about that in a little bit. They don't really show their hand with Will until a little bit too late in the movie. He's kind of a hard character to get to know because he doesn't really have a motivation. His motivation is not being motivated. He doesn't want to put his genius to use. And I think he does a really good job of indicating like how tortured he is beneath the surface I really liked Matt Damon in this movie, but if I'm being honest with you, I think I was more impressed by Ben Affleck just because he had so little to work with as compared to the fact that the script kind of goes overboard to get you on Matt Damon's side in this movie. That, yeah, that's interesting. I, I think that for me, I perceived his performance. I, I guess the hard thing is, how do you create motivations for somebody who is so guarded against everyone who is outside of his family. Right. And so I, I, I actually really enjoyed Matt Damon's performance because I think he plays that emotional distancing so well. And he does it like through comedy, you know, like the scenes when he's kind of paraded through the different psychiatrist rooms. You, you see him use humor as a distancing tool to keep people from knowing him. He does it with anger when he is with his boys and he just starts a fight for no reason. 
you see him use these different tools emotionally to keep people distant from him that I think it it makes the payoff at the end of the movie when he's emotionally healthy so much more beautiful. Yeah, and I think that Damon does play those scenes really well. I think my thing is, I don't even know if I want to call it a nitpick, Brad. I think it's just more like appreciating when an actor has less to chew on, less to work with, and, and makes more out of it. Like, if you were an actor and someone said, you can play Robin Williams' character or you can play Ben Affleck's character you're going to take Robin Williams' character 10 times out of 10 as a supporting role because he gets incredible dialogue. He gets monologues to himself where the camera's just like on his face. You know, he he gets some of those iconic moments in the movie, whereas I think that Chucky, Ben Affleck's character, is really there in an, a more kind of pure sense of being a supporting character. Like, he holds up the other characters. And I think I was just really impressed with how much of an impression that made on me, as opposed to some of these characters who get the quote-unquote big Oscar-y moments in the movie. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I I honestly really loved Ben Affleck's performance. And honestly, this watch-through, I noticed him a lot more than I had in the past. For sure. Um, so yeah, I would agree with you. Uh, I just, I also think that the big Oscar moments were also really good. Yeah, for sure. And that's, yeah, again, I don't want to take anything away from Robin Williams or from Matt Damon. I think they're both really, really good in this movie. The acting, for the most part, I think is solid all around. And the one exception that I have, Brad, and I really want to get your opinion on this, I'm not a big fan of Minnie Driver in this movie. Huh. Yeah, you know, like she she does really good in her quote unquote big Oscar-y moment, the scene where she and Will have this huge screaming match and she breaks down crying. It That scene, she sells it really, really well. But for the rest of the movie, her whole character is just kind of like, I'm going to be this charming, uh, sarcastic equal to Damon in terms of like verbal sparring. And, and it's good. I just don't know. I don't know how impressed I was with her as an actress. I think it's a well-written character, but I I could probably have also plugged like 10 other late 90s actresses into that role. And I think they would have been just as good as she was. Like, does that make sense? I don't know that she did anything super unique with what was on the page. That is interesting to me. I actually really liked Skylar in this movie. I thought that she was a fun injection of just kind of whimsical into their into Will's life that he didn't have before. Um, you know, like he has fun with his boys, his family, but he doesn't really have any sense of fun in the whimsical sort of manner. So I, I really liked how she injected that into the film. I think that you see her draw Will out in certain ways that you don't see any other character do. And I, for me, I, I think the biggest question is, in the end, is she the kind of girl that, like Robin Williams says in the movie, is she the kind of girl that you would want to go see about? And I would say yes. Like, she's interesting. She's smart. She she makes Will just light up with personality and life whenever he's around her. I personally really enjoyed her in this movie. I, I thought her performance drew the things out of Matt Damon that we needed to see. Yeah, I think that's fair. I guess I just kind of, you know, if I was going to get nitpicky, Brad, I think I would say like, Everything you just said sounds more like you like her character more than you like necessarily Minnie Driver as that character. Do you know what I mean? Like everything that that we liked about her was what the script gave her. And I'm just thinking to myself like, oh, you know, if they had put, I don't know, who's another Kate Winslet in that role. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think you could interchange a lot of people into that role. And I think it kind of bears out a little bit because Minnie Driver hasn't really been a super successful, very famous actress in the aftermath of this movie. She gets nominated for an Oscar for this film. I think she just kind of gets swallowed up in that the early 2000s by a lot of other actresses who kind of work in the same wheelhouse she does. And I think that's kind of what I'm getting at is like, I don't see a lot in her as an actress that stands out from any other actress working at this time. Yeah, I mean, I suppose so. I I guess I would look at it and I'd say, yes, sure, I can think about other actresses in that position. But all I know is Minnie Driver in that position, you know, that role. And I personally liked her a lot. And I I don't think it's just kind of what the script gave her. I don't know. I I enjoyed the way that she interacted with Matt Damon. I, I enjoyed the way she used her eyes to show excitement Uh, to show hurt. I thought that the screaming match scene was extremely well done. 
I think that her tenacity in loving Will um, really translated through the screen really well to me. So I, I, I liked her performance. Well, that really only leaves us with one major character left to talk about, and that is our star of the month, Robin Williams. Brad, I really think he's great in this movie. There's not really a lot for me to say. Like, he he absolutely deserved an Oscar. I thought that, you know, they say that they wrote this movie with him in mind. Whether that's true or not, that's kind of what they always say about really well-done performances in films. Whatever the intention was, he took this character and he made something great with it. Brad, what did you think of Robin Williams in this film? This is just one of Robin Williams' best performances. You know, like, we we kind of talked about a few of his different movies. I'd probably put Dead Poets Society up there as his other great performance. Um, but for me, this one kind of takes the cake because he plays such a consistent character throughout the film that you you always can tell that he knows who he is as a character. And I absolutely love that about him. That even when he's angry, even when he's, you know, he's frustrated uh, with the math professor, you can tell that Robin Williams has worked through his own stuff. And even when he's angry, he knows it doesn't change who he is as a person. And I think that he brings that stability to this movie that is so desperately needed because everybody else in this movie is a moving piece that it feels like they're in the middle of this storm that is Matt Damon. He's just this brooding storm that like throws everything in disarray that he touches. And in the middle of that, you have Sean step into the middle of that storm, sit down and just say, yeah, like, I know who I am and and you haven't lived life and that's okay. And I'm okay with that. You don't know about real loss because it only occurs when you love something more than you love yourself. I doubt you've ever dared to love anybody that much. I look at you. I don't see an intelligent, confident man. I see a cocky, scared, shitless kid. But you're a genius, Will. No one denies that. No one could possibly understand the depths of you. But you presume to know everything about me because you saw a painting of mine. You ripped my f***ing life apart. You're an orphan, right? Do you think I'd know the first thing about how hard your life has been, how you feel, who you are, because I read Oliver Twist? I, I just love the way that Robin Williams sits in the middle of Matt Damon's storm and becomes this emotional foundation for him to calm the storm, for Matt Damon to slowly examine the pieces of his life and kind of helps the world stop spinning around him. I, I just think that Robin Williams does a masterful job with that. Yeah, and Brad, I don't really want to get into talking too much about Robin Williams' own personal struggles and personal battles. I think we, we as a general population now know a lot more about what he was going through mentally. But even at this time, I think America was really aware of his struggles with drug addiction, that he had kind of overcome a, an addiction to cocaine. And I think that you need someone like a Robin Williams in this role. You need someone who has had real life trauma and struggles that they have overcome or that they're still grappling with to be able to convey the really sort of tortured, uh, broken down kind of nature of his character, Sean, in this movie. And I think the crazy thing about it is Robin Williams was like 45, 46 years old when this movie comes out. Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are both older now than Robin Williams was when this film came out. And if you tried to remake this movie and put either one of those two guys in the Robin Williams role, it doesn't work. It only works because he believably plays a guy that has lived a lot of life, that has seen some real stuff in his time, and that kind of has that weathered, wizened look to him. Yeah, I, th I think weathered is the greatest way to describe it. It's crazy that you bring that up. I literally was just looking at uh, Ben Affleck and, and uh, Matt Damon's age. Matt Damon is 50 and Ben Affleck is like 48 or 49. That's crazy to me because they both still look super young. And in this movie, Robin Williams, and I'm sure, you know, makeup and they had him grow out his beard and, and all that. But he looks like he could have been 58 to 62 in this movie. Absolutely. Like he, he was... 
he was struggling and I, and I think it works. It, it helps him kind of build this mystique of the the weathered, broken counselor that knows his stuff because he's seen his stuff, because he's lived in the real world. Well, Brad, we have a lot to keep talking about with the movie. I want to talk about Gus Van Sant's direction. I want to talk about this script that won an Oscar. But before we get to that, let's hit pause and let's try this JTS Brown bourbon. Let's get to it. Right, so today we are checking out JTS Brown Bottled and Bond Bourbon. Now, this is a bourbon with a very limited distribution. JTS Brown is a brand that's produced by Heaven Hill, one of bourbon's largest producers. But nationwide, if you find a bottle of JTS Brown, chances are it's probably going to be their 80 proof, which is, as we know, the lowest proof something can be and still legally be called bourbon. But I had heard rumblings you know, across the bourbon community that in that sort of bottom shelf, if you can find a bottle of this bottled and bond, it's very, very cheap, and it's one of the best values in bourbon. And so last time I went to Kentucky, I picked up a bottle. Like I said, the distribution is limited, so you may not be able to find this everywhere, but I think it is a worthy contender for our springtime of swill. Brad, have you ever heard of this brand before? Uh, no, I haven't. And I'm kind of curious how much you picked up the bottle for. If it's in our springtime of swill... Right. Well, I will say this. We'll get to that in the value portion of our review here. But suffice it to say, this is comfortably in the range of the springtime of swill, which we have set at $15 for a fifth. So, Brad, as we get into reviewing this, what are you picking up on the nose of this JTS Brown? Man, I, I mean, first off, the color of this is so deep. It's got that nice, deep brown caramely color to it. And then you put it to your nose and you get the traditional bourbon notes you're looking for. There's some nice vanilla. There's a tiny bit of spiciness, like an allspice kind of smell to it. Um, I, I'm picking up the caramel. It has a great nose to it. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it an eight on the nose. Yeah, I actually tried this out of two different glasses. We had samples of this sent to us by our friend, the urban bourbonist on Instagram, Chris Blattner. And... What a guy. I, I know, right? We got these samples around the same time that I went to Kentucky, and I picked up a bottle of JTS Brown while I was down there. So I have a large sample size to try. Um, but we wanted to stick to trying the samples that Chris sent us. And I tried this out of my kind of normal bourbon drinking glass, and I got some really weird notes on the nose. So I swapped over to like a snifter, and I liked it a lot better in there. Like you said, Brad, there's a lot of brown sugar. I got a lot of oak on this, like a lot of oak. Um, but it had those kind of really great dark notes that you get from a well-aged bourbon or one that has really picked up a lot of flavor out of that barrel. I get some peanut butter. And then I get these really, really nice floral notes to go with it. It's just a really, really good, complex nose, especially for something that I only paid a few dollars for. So I'm going to give this a seven and a half on the nose. Let's give it a sip, Bob. Oh, wow. That's really nice. Yeah. So again, I got a lot of different notes out of the taste between the two glasses that I tried it from, but especially on this kind of rounded snifter, it's pretty thin up front. I don't know if you'd agree with that, Brad, but I, it feels thin in yeah, terms no, of mouthfeel. My first thought was, oh, this is it's a nice amount of thinness, though. It's not like 80 proof water. Yeah, it's not it weak. It's just that it's not really viscous. Yeah. And it's kind of nice. It's really sweet. And I get a lot of spice on it, too. Lots of pepper notes on this, which is really, really good. I think it, it helps out to give some complexity to the sort of thin mouthfeel that it has. I'm going to give it a six and a half on the taste. I'm actually going to give it a seven on taste. I, I really enjoy this a lot. You get I'm picking up especially that allspice I was talking about. I, I'm really getting that pretty strongly on my palate, and I and I actually like it a lot. Like you said, the the slightly lesser uh, amount of viscosity, I, I think it helps bring out some of those flavors, um, the spiciness, and I'm really really enjoying that. So, Brad, what would you give it on the finish then? 
the finish is interesting. You know, it, it hugs you for a little while. You get a nice bit of burn. The flavor dissipates, though, within a minute or so. Uh, it doesn't sit with you for terribly long, but it, but it's got a nice, smooth finish. I think I'm going to give it a seven and a half on the finish. Yeah, I'm not quite as sold on the finish as you are. It's it's kind of bitter. Um, lots of those oaky notes. It's very lasting, which I think is a good thing, especially for something that's like a value bourbon. It's it's mouthwatering. It doesn't dry your mouth out. But overall, I mean, it's an impressive finish for a cheap whiskey, but it's not my favorite flavor that, that's left in my mouth. So I'm going to give it a six on the finish. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm getting a little bit more sweetness on the finish than you are. And, and I think that's why my score is sitting a little higher. Like I, like I taste a little bit of vanilla just lingering on my mouth. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I'm just not picking it up today. And it may just be because of, you know, the coffee that I drank before we started this episode. <laughs> that's it's one of the things that we talk about a lot, Brad, is like, if we tried this on any other day, how much different would our scores be? How much does the, the tacos or the steak that you ate for dinner affect the whiskey that you have afterwards? Like, there's so many variables, and it's impossible to have a completely neutral palate going into something. Yeah, the the problem with whiskey tasting is that, you know what, your taste buds are sensitive and they change from day to day and what you've had before it. And, you know, did you brush your teeth this morning or not? Did you eat an apple for breakfast or did you eat, you know, leftover pizza for breakfast? It it, it kind of changes everything. So hopefully we're always giving you an honest, you know, review, but you, you can only take what you what you taste at a time. Well, that brings us to overall balance, Brad, and I think this is a fairly well-balanced whiskey. Like I said, I had it out of my normal glass and I did not care for it at all, but I, when I put it in a different glass, it was like a, a whole new world opened up for me. I, I tasted notes of apple in the first glass that I didn't taste at all in the second glass, but it was so much sweeter and had so many more of those classic bourbon notes that it's kind of hard for me to give this a balanced score. In the second glass that I tried it out of, it all made sense a little bit more. Things that I got on the nose were there in the taste and the finish. Especially for being a value bourbon, I think I'm going to give this a 7 out of 10 on balance. It's a pretty well-balanced whiskey. It's not the greatest whiskey in the world, but I like it a lot. So I'll, I'll stick with a 7. Uh, I just, I just want to check to make sure, you know, just do my duty as a good citizen. Did you actually drink the same whiskey out of both both glasses, Bob? I did. Yeah, I had like two sips of it out of the first glass. And I said, I'm not enjoying this. Let me try it out of another glass. <laughs> and then I dumped the rest into a different glass. Really? And yeah. that changed that changed it all around. It really did. Wow. You sound there, really skeptical. <laughs> I, <laughs> I am really skeptical because I, I guess I just feel like and I, I could be wrong. In fact, I, I know that I'm partially wrong because I know that the type of glass changes things. But I just feel like if a whiskey could change that much just by switching the type of glass, then it's kind of like, well, what's the point of what we're doing? If you could if you could change the flavor just by changing the glass, then <laughs> then what's the point of even making like different types of whiskey? Just, well, just I'm, make one whiskey that you just put in different that's glasses. Fair. That's and, fair. You know, I, I do different. think that like it only affects it so much. Like my initial scores on taste were like five and a half. And when I tried it out of a different glass, it was like, oh, no, this is probably like a seven. So it wasn't like it dramatically changed it from a two to, you know, an yeah. eight or a nine. No, but, I, I'm, but you're I'm absolutely being... right, Brad. I know. I mean, I know you're being facetious, but I think it's important for people to realize, like, if you just drink this out of a standard rocks glass where the walls of the glass are completely straight and like, you Know, perpendicular. When that liquid hits your tongue and, and enters your mouth, it's going to hit your taste buds at a different point than one that's more rounded in or, or one that's more rounded out, kind of concave or convex. Like that all affects your palate. That all affects how the whiskey is going to like coat your tongue. What parts of your taste buds and, and the sensory things going on in your mouth is going to be affected. And so, you know, it really is. I think a good idea when you're trying a whiskey that if it's not just a one and out, you know, one and done, I'm going to try one glass of this. If you have a bottle of something, try it out of different glasses. Try it with a drop of water or two. Try every possible permutation of that whiskey before you really pass judgment on it. Yeah, just try it straight out of the bottle. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you, you, just you don't stop drinking ever. That's that's what we're saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and if you're a little bit more like me, a little bit more skeptical, where you're kind of like, well, crap, I, I don't know, I just drink it out of a rocks glass. That 
don't worry about it. Just drink the whiskey you like. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that, I think I think that might be saying, the point like, I'm don't, getting to. Don't rush to judgment. You know what I mean? Like, if you've yeah. already invested in a bottle, even if you're not caring for it, try it out of a couple different glasses and see if maybe you prefer it out of something different, if it opens up a little bit more for you that way. Yeah. No, I like like you said, Bob, I, I'm definitely being a little bit facetious. I, I know that whiskey changes when you put it in different glasses. I know that wine changes when you put it in different glasses. Sometimes I just, there's a small part in the back of my brain that goes, this is ridiculous. Oh, it's absolutely <laughs> ridiculous, Brad. Don't worry. I'm right there with you. So what would, what would you give this on the balance? <laughs> the, after all of that deliberation, <laughs> I'm actually going to give it the exact same score. Oh my gosh, Brad. You're giving it a seven, huh? <laughs> I'm giving it a seven out of 10. All right, cool. It's decently well balanced. It's, you know, it's fine. And then overall value, now we already said that this is a pretty inexpensive whiskey. It is well below the $15 mark. Uh, you can buy this at many locations for less than $10. I've actually seen it listed for $9.79 in some stores. I think I paid $11 for this whiskey for a fifth. But in either case, I don't think you're going to be paying more than 12 bucks, no matter where you're purchasing this whiskey. So Brad, let's just say $12. At 12 bucks, what would you give this on value? Bob, that's actually, this is probably my favorite from the springtime of Swill. Um, I, I really have enjoyed this bourbon a lot. I'm going to give it an eight and a half on value. I, I don't think you're going to get many whiskeys that are much better than this JTS Brown bottled in bond for, for 10 to $12. Holy cow. Yeah, Brad, I'm actually just going to stick at a seven on value. And there's a couple reasons for that. One is that I didn't care for it out of the first glass I tried it out of. And Look, I know we were joking, but you're right, Brad. Like, if I have to swap glassware to enjoy something, then it's probably not the best product in the world. I do like it a lot, but Heaven Hill also makes another bottom shelf whiskey called JW Dant, which we're going to try, I think, next season. And it is absolutely comparable to this. Like, same price. The bottles look almost the same. And I actually really like Dant a lot more than I like JTS Brown. And so I'm, I think in my mind, I'm kind of comparing the two. But again, at 12 bucks, Brad, you're right. There's not a lot that you can get that would be better than this. So it's definitely a seven in my book. And Bob, that that brings my final score out to a 38 out of 50, which is a really high score for for what we do on, you know, on our whiskeys. But I'm not going to be ashamed of it. I like this whiskey a lot. You know, does it compare to a high-end 38 that I might have given in the past? Probably not. But for the price that we paid, I'm a big fan of this whiskey. Yeah, me too, Brad. I'm actually coming out to a 34, which brings our average to a 36 out of 50 or 72 points out of 100. This is just a solid whiskey. If you see it anywhere on the shelf, you'll probably have to go to Kentucky to find it in wider distribution. Uh, but pick up a bottle of this JTS Brown bottled in bond. I think it's a solid recommendation for me. Brad, would you recommend? Oh, wholeheartedly. Yeah, it's it's a great whiskey that I would I would highly recommend you get out and find. All right, Brad, well, what do you say we get back into talking about the movie Goodwill Hunting? Let's get to it. So that was JTS Brown Bottled and Bond, a whiskey that we both really, really enjoyed. And Brad, this is a movie that a lot of people really, really enjoy. And I'm excited to get into talking about kind of our overall impressions of the movie. We've talked about the acting and literally nothing else so far. So I want to get into the direction. I want to get into the script. I want to get into the reputation this movie has built up over the years. And so I'm going to leave it up to you, Brad. Where do you want to start in kind of breaking down our impressions of this movie? Well, I think w what we need to start with is probably the script and, and then talk about how the direction kind of moves you through the script. Because, you know, the script is what won the Oscar. And but I, I do think there are a few flaws in the script. Um, so I kind of like to get into that. Absolutely. You know, I have a reputation on this podcast, Brad, that I've built up over the last year of being a nitpicker. And I understand that I, you know, when you love movies it, as much as I do, uh, yeah, I it, do embrace, embrace it. it. Like Bob. we nitpick things we love. 
You know what I mean? Like, if you don't care about something, then you're not going to care enough to nitpick. Yeah, I mean, that's right now I'm watching through the 2016 Cleveland Cavaliers championship with some friends. And there's moments where we're we're just like, man, J.R. Smith was a complete idiot. Like, like, what is he doing? Is he now? Is that the probably one of my favorite sports teams of all time? Heck, yeah, it is. But, you know, I can nitpick it. That's OK. It's Absolutely. The the world. I will say, though, that I don't have a lot of nitpicks with this movie. And the big glaring issue that I have with this movie actually is the script and the direction. And this, you know, this script won an Oscar. And I think that over the years, it's become kind of this classic textbook example of like the Hollywood Cinderella story. We've seen the clip of Matt Damon and Ben Affleck winning their Oscar. And it's this classic moment in Oscar history. But Brad, like, I think there are moments where the dialogue in this movie is incredible. I think some of the monologues that they give, like, Robin Williams on that park bench is an incredible scene. The first scene between Will and Sean when, you know, Sean chokes him out, the back and forth that they have, it's a perfectly written scene. And then there are other moments where the dialogue is so eye-rolling and so cringy. You can tell this was their first script. You know what I mean? Like, is it a well-written movie? Yeah, I think it's it's structured well. I think it's a really familiar movie, and that's why people like it a lot. Like I don't think there's ever really a point in this movie where I'm like, oh, I don't know where this is going to end up. It's predictable, but it's really comfortable. But I don't think I've ever understood people like teaching this script in screenwriting classes. Like, I, I think I feel like I've seen this movie or seen this story played out a hundred different times. And this is a really good example of it. But it's not necessarily the most original thing I've ever seen. That's really interesting to me. I, I don't know if I've seen a lot of other movies that engage these specific topics in the same way that they do in this film. Do you, do you have other movies in mind that are like similar? So there's a really cool website that I think is called tvtropes.com or something like that, where they do movies too, but they, they break down like all of the different tropes or recurring themes that you see in movies and Goodwill Hunting's page is like really long. And I think okay. the thing, the thing about this movie is that it takes a lot of cliches and it puts them together in a way that, people hadn't seen before. And so in one sense, it is original. But I think in another sense, like, I was kind of identifying movies all throughout watching this that I was like, oh, this reminds me of that. And this reminds me of that. There's the overarching trope of like, the the young man who denies who he wants to be. And that's something that you see in movies like The Graduate. You know what I mean? There's you're denying what your destiny is. And that, you know, we talked about that in movies like The Lion King, you are a king and you're denying it. There's the trope of like saving the damaged youth, the troubled youth. That's all through movies. I mean, they made a crappy movie a couple years after this called Finding Forrester with Sean Connery, where he's playing the Robin Williams role. Hmm. There's part of it reminds me even of like Dead Poet Society, where Robin Williams is, you know, how do I reach these kids? Like it's it's a theme you see in all sorts of like troubled high schooler movies. There's the the genius who overcomes his obstacles kind of cliche, which is something that we talked about with the beautiful mind and the pursuit of happiness. Like, I think that there are familiar themes that run through this movie. And the the way that this script is original is that it puts them together in a way that we may not have seen before, but they still kind of fall back on these really familiar story beats, if that makes sense. See, and, and that's where I think there's this kind of argument between the average moviegoer and the film critic that I feel like you're kind of tapping into, which is the reason something is familiar is because people like it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, is it bad to be familiar? And I don't think that you're saying that it is. But I think what you're kind of pointing to is that films that deserve Oscars should be more original than they are familiar. Yeah, I think, Do that's, you probably think that's, a, a fair? that's probably a fair thing to say, Brad. Like, this is a well-written screenplay that takes really familiar story beats and makes something somewhat unique out of them in the same way. Like it it reminds me of star Wars. I mean, that is literally just the hero's journey, right? It's, it's a very familiar story arc and yet we love star Wars because we're familiar with it. And it was a well done example of a really familiar kind of story. But do I think that this screenplay deserved to be named the best screenplay of the year? I don't know. I'd have to go back and look at like what was nominated, whatever, but like, 
it doesn't strike me as something that's really original, that's kind of like a game changer that we that deserves our attention any more than any of those other movies I just listed did. See, and I would probably argue the opposite side. I think that because of how familiar it is and because of how beautiful the story ends up being, I think it deserves the Oscar. I, I think it's a movie that it, it tugs on the heartstrings so deeply. And I think that between the acting performances and the script and the direction of the movie, I think you get such a beautiful image of emotional brokenness and emotional reconciliation throughout the film that I think it I think it 100 percent deserves it. Now, I, I guess what I'm trying to point to is it's hard for me as an average movie person to separate the script from the actors who acted out the script and the director who framed the shot in a certain way and the the lighting technician who set the lighting in a certain way. Like, it's hard for me to separate all those because in the end, I don't see those things separately. I see the finished product. Mm-hmm. And so when I watch the finished product of this movie, I can't necessarily put my finger on oh, well, well, it was the script that it, that excelled or it was the acting that excelled or the direction that excelled. All I know is that this is one of the most compelling movies I've seen in a long, long time. And I am moved very deeply by it. Yes, there's issues with the script. Like he, the script continually hammers home the fact that Casey Affleck is like a child. Uh, okay, I get it. He masturbates into a glove. Ha ha ha. But overall, I look at it and I go, man, the finished product, this is a spectacular movie. It, it draws me in and it keeps me in. I, like, I don't know about you, Bob, but like, this is a movie that makes me cry. Mm. The, like, maybe not every time, but like, I was watching this two or three days ago and I was crying at the end of it because I, as I get older and as I listen to Robin Williams talk about what it's like to find a woman and to find someone that farts in the middle of the night and you take the blame for it because they wake up, they farted so hard. She woke up and got like, oh, is that you? See, I didn't have the heart to tell her. <laughs> oh, God. She woke herself up? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Christ. Ah, but, Will, she's been dead two years, and that's the shit I remember. <laughs> wonderful stuff, you know? Little things like that. Yeah, but those are the things I miss the most. The little idiosyncrasies that only I knew about. That's what made her my wife. Oh, and she had the goods on me, too. She knew all my little peccadillos. People call these things imperfections, but they're not. Oh, that's the good stuff. And then we get to choose who we let into our weird little worlds. Things like that. You know, as I get older and the more I experience <laughs> marriage and life, yeah, the yeah. more I appreciate how deeply this script and this movie touches on some of what I consider to be the most important things in this world. Absolutely. I, I think that's what draws me in so much about the script. Absolutely. And and I agree with you, Brad, that I'm willing to kind of overlook some of the bad parts because the good stuff is so good. Right. And for me, especially like the last half hour of this movie really, really worked and it made up for and it justified all the cliches and all the bad dialogue that came before it. I was trying to research a little bit of like what makes this script really good. And I, I learned that there's a thing in screenwriting called the melodrama rule. And basically, it's like a generally accepted thing when you're writing a script that you don't want to put too many scenes back to back where people are like in hysterics, whether crying and yelling and having these big emotional breakdowns, because you're not giving the audience enough time to kind of breathe in between those scenes like you need to build to it. And that makes sense. And they said Goodwill Hunting breaks this rule because uh, this person counted five scenes in a row where there's like a big emotional climax. And yet the reason that that works in this movie is because the accumulation of everything that's falling apart in Will's life all comes to a head. And so they're able to break this longstanding rule of don't do this because it works for this movie. Will has worked so hard as a character to build up this facade over the years to not allow anyone in to project this sort of really tough exterior. And it literally destroys every relationship in his life until he can finally hear those words. It's not your fault. And that scene mm. works for me, not because of what's actually said. I think any therapist will tell you that's 
that's some weak sauce therapy. Yeah. But like the reason it works is because we've seen Will literally wreck every relationship that he has in his life leading up to that. And he is in such a vulnerable spot that just hearing that that one sentence is what finally breaks him. And I think that's why this movie works so well, because it does such a good job of showing how all of these things accumulating really build to that climax. And I think they really land the plane really, really well in spite of a few bumps along the way. And I really think that one of the most important parts of this movie is the fact that the movie doesn't end with Robin Williams telling him it's not your fault. Like the fact that you you get some cathartic moments of him fixing relationships with other people and you end with this this kind of hopeful scene of him driving out to San Francisco to try to repair the the damage that he did with Skylar. Like I think that the movie knows just the right point to stop. And I think, honestly, the credit scene is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. I just love that you just get this long, uninterrupted shot of him driving out west. Mm-hmm. And may- maybe it's the Midwesterner in me that, you know, as I watch him driving, I'm like, oh, he's in like Pennsylvania, Northeast Ohio right there. Like, <laughs> like I know that he's on Highway 80 yeah. driving. There's something about that that is familiar to me, and there's something about that that's beautiful where you just get this shot of, like, this isn't the end of his life. He's still traveling. I think this movie wraps up so daggone well with that shot of him driving out west because it kind of encapsulates the whole movie. Like, the whole movie is a journey. The whole movie is Matt Damon taking a trip through his life finding emotional stability and and you don't just end there you know that he's going to live the rest of his life you know in the movie he's he just turned 21 and you know that he's going to make something of it but you also know that it's because Sean was willing to sit with him in that storm for this period of his life that he could kind of calm the waters of his childhood and be a healthy adult absolutely brad before we give our final scores i want to talk about one other thing you know, in, in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein scandal, I think people have gone back and looked at Harvey Weinstein's involvement with all these movies in the 90s and the 2000s. He was one of the executives at Miramax, and he is known for being one of the most ruthless Oscar contenders ever. Like, he was a master at putting together successful campaigns to win his movies Oscars because he knew if this movie wins Oscars, more people will go back to the movies and see it because it has this air of importance after that. When I look back on Goodwill Hunting, and I'm going to kind of out myself here, I think this is a good movie. I don't think it's a great movie. Like, I, I think it's well done. Like I said, it's a really familiar kind of movie. It hits some very familiar beats, and it does it well. But I've never really seen this as like a 10 out of 10 movie. Now, some people do, and I, I appreciate that. Everybody has their opinion. But part of me wonders how much the movie's Oscar campaign and how much the marketing of this movie has kind of influenced us a little bit. And we've talked about this a bit with other films on the podcast. In 1997, 1998, Miramax is at the height of its powers. And we are being fed these commercials where you see movie critics fawning over this movie. We're being fed these images of Damon and Affleck on stage getting an Oscar. And nowadays, like that kind of marketing doesn't work anymore. Nobody watches the Oscars anymore. Nobody cares about stuff like that. You don't see commercials for movies where there's a ton of movie critic quotes because we don't we don't have a Roger Ebert anymore. Like no one takes movie critics seriously anymore. But in 97, 98, they absolutely did. And, you know, this movie gets sold into syndication. It goes on to TNT. It's sold to us as a new Hollywood classic the same way that Shawshank was, Brad. And you brought this up earlier. And I think like Shawshank, it's a really easily digestible movie. It's a movie that can be marketed as a classic, quote unquote. And part of me just wonders, like, I wonder how much the fact that we've been fed this movie as a classic affects the way we look at it. Because I think it's a good movie, but I don't know if I would consider it a classic. Yeah, Bob, I I can't speak for everyone else. I can only speak for me. Uh, for me, I went into this movie just being told by a friend, oh, yeah, dude, you haven't seen Good Will Hunting? It's a really good movie. You should watch it. And like I'm not a I'm not a deep movie enthusiast, so I just kind of took it on that and I watched it with some friends and I was blown away by the movie. And I've watched it a few times since. And I, every time I've ever watched it, 
I'm blown away by this movie and how much I love it. So I, I for me, the Oscars that it's won, the you know marketing machine of the 90s has no effect on me. I, I didn't really watch uh, much TV when I was a kid. You know, this movie came out when I was seven, six to seven years old. So I, I wasn't seeing commercials. I wasn't watching the Oscars. I wasn't affected in any way by the Harvey Weinstein Miramax marketing machine. I just watched it because a friend recommended sure. it. And I freaking love well, it. Well, and again, I'm not saying that like people don't have that experience. I, I think what I'm just saying is like this movie is an example, but I think we just need to be really aware as consumers of media that a lot of people saw this movie, Brad, in the wake of all of that marketing. And the reason it's been able to build up such a reputation as a quote unquote classic in a lot of ways is because we've been told it's a quote unquote classic because when you see a movie on TV 150 times, it becomes super familiar to you and you just get used to it being on TV. And so I think if if you're coming into it with like the experience that you had, Brad, I think that's a way more valid reason to enjoy a movie. You had absolutely no attachment to that stuff. You just liked it. But what I'm saying is, yeah, as a consumer just be aware of, do I like this movie because I really like it? Or do I like this movie because I'm exposed to advertisements for this movie every 10 seconds a day? And, and just, you know what I mean? Just just be cognizant of what the media is feeding us in terms of how we look at and appreciate movies. Yeah, I, I, even with that, I would slightly disagree because there's a part of me that goes, if the movie was junk then people wouldn't continue watching it. They would turn their TV off or to a different channel when Goodwill Hunting came on or Shawshank came on. I, I think the reason that those two movies have succeeded is because they're good movies. Now, you know, is Shawshank perfect? No. Are there a lot of people who would say it is? And it's like, yeah, sure. But in general, I'm like, if this was a flop of a movie then it wouldn't have ever been advertised as that. And they would quickly realize, oh, we're spending our money on something that's not actually a classic and people aren't watching and people don't like. I think one of the reasons it became, you know, marketable is because it's good. Absolutely. I, I, I don't know. It's it's a kind of a weird back and forth between yeah. the two things. And and I think you're right. I mean, I, I obviously, <laughs> I think I'm right or I wouldn't have said that, but I think you're right, too. You've been able to keep yourself out of the echo chamber completely when it comes to movies. But I think that for a lot of people, even just kind of like the casual film goer, there are certain movies that you always hear about and that you can get caught up in the echo chamber of people falling all over themselves about a movie. And it really does sway. Maybe this movie was only a seven out of 10, but then I heard so many people say it's a masterpiece that maybe I'm like, well, okay, maybe it is a masterpiece. And I was just wrong. So I think what I'm saying is like, I respect people like you, Brad, who are able to go into this movie completely cold, come out of it, not being swayed by manipulation from marketing or from the media. And with that, I think we've said all we really need to say about this movie, Brad. I really want to hear your final score because I do respect you as someone who came into this movie not knowing a lot about it. So what do you think of the film Goodwill Hunting? Yeah, my... I kind of I'm kind of in between a 10 and a nine and a half. I personally sat down and finished this movie this week. And just once again, even being more critical this time and, and trying to be more discerning, I just still was blown away by how this script takes Will Hunting throughout his life. And you see him find emotional reconciliation and peace. Um, I, there are some issues. There are scenes in the movie that I don't think are necessary. Um, so I, I'm going to give it a nine and a half out of 10. I, it's not a perfect movie, but overall, I just, there's something about this film that just touches my soul and it just works. And, and that's why I love it. Yeah. I mean, I think that I really like this movie. I'm not as, as sold on it as you are. I do think the Shawshank comparison is, it was worth talking about. We didn't really get into it, but like, I see a lot of the same things. It's a guy who can't really help the situation that he's in who has a bunch of buddies that help him along the way that is smarter than everybody else. And the climax of the movie is his escape from what's holding him back. I actually think that that scene where Damon rides the subway home and then is in his apartment plotting out how he's going to escape. It actually reminded me a lot of Shawshank. I thought the music was like Shawshank. And if we're going just based on that, I think Shawshank is a way better depiction of, of that sort of theme. This is a good movie. That is solid, and I just have never understood why it's held up as like one of the best movies of all time. 
I don't think it's Robin Williams' best performance, even though he's great in it. And so, Brad, I think I'm going to give this movie a 7 out of 10. I wanted to say a seven and a half, but I think that's just because I, I think that people love it and I want to I want to like honor that. But for me, it's a solid movie that I like watching on the cable on a Saturday afternoon <laughs> with commercials. It makes me feel good. Yeah, it's predictable, but it does it well. And so for me, it's a seven out of ten. And that is going to bring our final average to an eight point two five out of ten. I think you're going to get pushback on that seven, Bob. I probably I, will. I, yeah. But you know what? I'm a nitpicker already, so who who cares? Nitpick away. (laughs) But honestly, guys, we want to know what you think. Uh, You know, if you have some stuff you want to talk about, get off your chest. Find us on social media. We are at Film Whiskey on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Or you could give us a call. We haven't gotten a lot of calls on our call-in line lately. I really want to play some listener feedback on the air. We know you're at home. Just give us a call. You can call our voicemail at 216 800-5923. Once again, that number is 216-800-5923. Next week, we'll be back talking about a movie that's going to be celebrating just its fifth anniversary coming up here soon, 2015's The Revenant. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time.